Good morning, guys. So Friday night, I took my daughter to the father-daughter prom, and and it was fun. And uh, and we get in the car to go to the father-daughter prom, and she um, she says, "Daddy," she's in the back seat, and I'm driving, and she says, um, "She says, Daddy, this is this is like I'm a princess, and uh, and you're like the prince, and your car is like the horse carriage." And I'm like, girl, you better slow down. This is a 2000 Pathfinder, okay? And uh, and um, so we go to the father-daughter dance. And uh, I'm like, girl, you're watching way too much Disney to be thinking about stuff like that. Um, so we go to the father-daughter dance and had a good time. And then uh, just something kind of hit me around like 10 o'clock on Friday night. I get home, and I'm just not feeling too good. And I spent all of Friday night being reintroduced to every piece of food that I ate the day before, all right? And uh, so, um, anyway, slept most of yesterday, um, and have you guys seen that that YouTube video of the kid? He's like, is this real life? Like, he's on drugs from the dentist's office? Um, That's kind of how I feel right now. This feels like a dream right now uh, that I'm up here, so bear with me. I say all that not to get you to feel sorry for me, but just to get your prayers that um, I'd have strength today. And uh, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. So turn to Romans chapter 2. And um, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Romans. And my hope for this series, I've mentioned this a couple times, is really twofold. Number one is that I'm praying for spiritual breakthroughs to happen in this uh, room. Um, My my goal, my hope, my prayer is that um, if you're not a believer, that God would use this book of Romans to help you understand what it really means to follow Christ um, if you are a believer, but you've been living out just a, a, a joyless faith, my hope is that Romans would reintroduce you to the joy and love that is found in, in a relationship with Christ. And so that's one hope, is that I'm praying for spiritual breakthroughs to happen all over this room as we walk through the book of Romans. But I'm also praying for our group to experience a unity unlike ever before. And I know whenever I say, we say, let's be unified, that can sound like an abstract concept. That can sound like I'm just saying it because that's what you're supposed to say as a youth pastor. But the question becomes, well, well, what does unity look like in a youth group? I know we can throw it out there as a great idea, but what does it actually look like to be unified as a group? And I would tell you that if, if we're not unified, it's not that we have a unity problem. We've got a gospel problem. If we're not unified, the problem isn't just, hey, guys, be unified. The problem is there's a gospel problem because Romans points us to this idea that if Jews and Gentiles are going to be united, it's going to happen because they both have a firm grasp of the gospel that we're all lost apart from Christ. and We can only be united in Christ. So we never have just a unity problem. We have a gospel problem. But the question becomes again, what, what does unity really look like? And I began thinking about this. Because when you think about your friendships, think about this idea. Most of your friendships are fairly predictable, aren't they? You're friends with people that look kind of like you, act kind of like you, dress kind of like you, play on the same sport teams you play on. You both like certain music. And so you find something in common. Like just, if you just take a step back from your friendships, a lot of your friendships make sense, right? They just make sense. Like, yeah, it, it makes sense that me and this person are friends because we have all this stuff in common. We just happen to be friends. And if you think about your friendships, most of your friendships on the surface, they make a lot of sense. But we know the gospels at work in a place 
when many of the friendships don't make a lot of sense. I think of, I'm not going to mention this girl's name because many of you guys know her, but this girl that graduated last year, I started thinking about just the way she carried herself in this youth group. And one thing I noticed about this one girl, that she had some friendships that didn't make a whole lot of sense. There was this one girl this girl would reach out to that came on Sunday morning here. And she invited this girl into their their G group. Um, When I'd go to different events and functions, I would see this one girl hanging out with this other girl. And you look at them, and they go to different schools. They have different friends. They, They dress different. They act different. They talk different. Everything about them is different. But I noticed this one girl was always reaching out to this other girl. And she was always pursuing her and inviting her into things. And so you know the gospel's at work when the friendships don't always make a lot of sense. Because it's not that they have just everything external in common, but they've got Christ in common. They've got the gospel in common. And so you know the gospel's at work in a place when the friendships don't make a whole lot of sense to the, to the human mind. We can look past those differences and see that um, we, we want to be unified around the gospel and who Jesus is. And this is, I think, how you know that the gospel's at work in a place. And so this is what Paul desires for the Jews and the Gentiles. And we see this all throughout the book of Romans. He, he desires us for the, the Jews and the Gentiles to be unified around one common thing, the gospel. So last week, Kim talked about the gospel for the religious I don't have to review that because today is going to be, the entire talk today is going to be a big review of last week uh, because Romans 2 is all about just one big topic. And so this is part two of Romans chapter two. And so we've called today's uh, talk the gospel for the proud. Um, so look at Romans chapter two, look at, we'll start in verse 17. And I know when, I, when we talk about this topic today, um, if I were to survey the room and ask you the question, are you saved by works? Most of you would say, no, of course not. Like, you know the right answer to give when I ask that question. But I think what happens to us, especially those that are raised in the church, like many of you are, what can happen is that you know the right answer, you know the right intellectual answer that we're not saved by works, but you live out this sort of subtle works-based salvation without even knowing it. And so this is what I'm hoping Romans can address in some of us. I know that when we talk about what Kim talked about last week, what I'm talking about today, that some of you guys are going to turn off and just go, yeah, yeah, I already know that. I know that already. I already have that down. But I want you to be open to what God wants to do, because I think sometimes we miss this idea that we live out a works-based salvation while saying we believe in a gospel of grace. And so this is what we're aiming for as we walk through Uh, this part of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 17. We'll start there. Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so Israel was given three things. They were given the covenant by God, which is a relationship based on a promise. They were given the law, and they were given something um, very awkward, circumcision. 
And we're going to discuss that at the very end today. So I'm um, not going to get into details, but just so you know what's coming down the road here. And uh, so they're given these three things by God. And these things cause in them to, to be prideful as a people. These things begin to incite pride in them as a people. So this is what Paul's addressing here in chapter 2. And if you look back on chapter 1, Paul described the sin of the, Genti- of the sin of the Gentiles. And in chapter 2, he turns to the Jews. And if a Jew read chapter 1, they might say to themselves, you know, I'm not like these Gentiles. I'm not like these people. So Paul, in chapter 2, turns the tables and begins to address the Jews. And this is Paul's way of saying, wait a minute, before you judge the Gentiles, you as the Jews need to understand your own version of sin. And he lays out in chapter 2 their version of sin, how the Jews struggle with sin. And he lists off several things in this first passage. He talks about their nationality. They're proud of their nationality. They are chosen by God. They're also proud of of the law and knowing the law. They're proud of their relationship with God. They're proud that they could see the sin of other people. All these things lead to pride for them. They're proud that they were a guide for the blind. So in some ways they were meant to show the world who God is and show the world their sin. But in their doing that, they begin to be prideful about their own standing before God. And so these things lead to pride for them as a people. And see, all these things I just mentioned to you, these are not necessarily bad things, but they become bad if we begin to see them as our system of salvation, this ladder to God, this works-based salvation that, that people can oftentimes fall into. Tim Keller writes in his book, he says, there's a difference between morality and moralism. Moralism turns morality into a god. Moralists see themselves as more decent than others. And I want you to catch this idea. So moralism is not the same thing as morality. Moralism is when you turn morality into a God. When when you're seeing your behavior, you're, you're, you're living a moral life as your reason for having good standing before God. And so you can see how this is a, a trap for the Jews and also a trap for us today. If I could do... Um, I've often thought about doing either a series or a talk on this, but something titled like um, more than morality, like salvation, knowing Christ, following Christ is so much more than morality. I think so many of us, especially if you're not a believer, you you come in here and, and you think that following Christ or being a Christian just means that you attend church and you behave yourself. And that's how often we look at Christianity, that, that's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that you have this vital, loving, life-giving relationship with the creator of the universe. It's not just about believing a set of facts and just behaving yourself. That's not what it means to be a Christian. And when you and I begin to live out that kind of mor- moralism, we, we start to look at society and think things like, I'm more decent or I'm more moral than they are. Now, we may not say it out loud, but we think it, we believe it, we feel it. And I want to give you an example of how this might play out today in our lives. Um, I went to a kind of a small private Christian school in the town that I grew up in, and, um, and I'm in no way... Uh, 
denigrating the private school, home school, any of that kind of model. I'm not doing anything with that today. I'm not making a statement about that, but I need to be honest with you about some things that happened to me when I was in that, in that environment. Um, I went to a private Christian school, and many aspects of that school were very good for me. But here's the message that was sent from some of my teachers and my leaders in that place, whether it was subtle or whether it was direct. Um, because you go here, you're special. You're, you're not like those other kids out there. And it, was, it can be a, a subtle message that was sent in our school environment. And because you go here, you're special. You're not like those other kids. And it could be communicated directly or indirectly. And so it, it began to lead to this sort of pride that I think many of us had in, in our school setting. And, and trust me, if you're someone that goes um, to a public school, you're also can fall victim to this because you can think to yourself, you know, you, you may have your Christian friends or your Christian circle at your public school, and whenever something bad happens in your school, you roll your eyes at those people and you think things like, oh, it's those kids again. Oh, it's those kids again. And you've got your little enclave of Christian friends that you're in, your Christian bubble, even in your, even in your public school. And this can happen not just in the private school, home school, but it can also happen in the public school as well. And you begin to see yourself as, you know, I'm more decent, I'm more moral than those people. And you begin to um, prop yourself up and see yourself as better than those other people that you see in your school setting. And so you and I, we can't use school, we can't use friendship group, we can't use social status, we can't use morality to prop ourselves up. And this is exactly what the Jews were doing as they look, at, look down their nose at the Gentiles. And a couple of questions I want to ask you this morning. This is, how do we know if we've lapsed into some kind of moralism? Here's two questions you can ask yourself to answer this question. First of all, do we react to suffering and pain with sustained anger towards God? Go to my next slide, if you will. Do we react to um, suffering and pain with sustained anger towards God? Next slide, please with sustained anger towards God. Because if you and I um, approach God with this mentality that says, God, you better not let anything bad happen to me. What's underneath that question or that belief is this idea that God owes me something. And so if you and I have this sustained anger towards God just all the time, is a good diagnostic question for if we're living out this sort of moralism faith or just moralistic faith. You know, yeah, I, I perform for God, I do good things for God, and he's supposed to do good things for me. And if God lets his end of the bargain down, well, we're angry at him. We're mad at him. The next question is this. Do we get jealous when we see someone else benefiting from God's grace? Do we get jealous? Do we, if, if someone else, if something good happens to someone else, do we get jealous of them as they benefit from God's grace to them? Because if that happens, and this one, this one really gets me personally, because I have a really tough time when something good happens to someone else. I've got a really tough time rejoicing with them. You know why? Because I'm sinful, and I think I deserve it too. And so when you and I think about something good happening to someone else, and it causes us to be jealous Again, what's underneath that idea is God owes me something. 
and God's not giving me what he owes me. And this is indicative of someone who lives out a moralistic kind of faith. I perform for God, and God performs for me. And this is how many of us live. And so um, throughout this whole passage, we can really substitute the word Jew for Christian, and it should make more sense to you. So if, if Paul were to write, I wanted to modernize this passage today and, and put it up on this so you can really see it on the screen. This, this might be a modern, a, a, re, a, re-modern, uh, a remodernized telling of this passage. You call yourself a born-again Christian, and you are sure you're right with God because you signed a commitment card or walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer, and you really cried that night. You remember you had strong feelings for God. So you must have been converted that night. And hey, since then, you have memorized dozens of scripture verses, and you know the right answer to a large array of questions, and you've led others to make a commitment to Christ in the Bible study that you lead. And this is a retelling of, of what this passage might look like. It was written directly to us as Christians, Christians today. So Paul starts his passage off saying, so you call yourself a Jew. Today he might say, so you call yourself a Christian. And I think he's trying to make the point that you, you and I can't base our salvation on just having a really strong spiritual experience. Th- that can't be the basis of our salvation. And if you and I were to boil this whole passage down to just one big idea, it would be this. Using good moral behavior as a way to life leads only to death. And if you're someone that you consider yourself a Christian but you lack joy, then I would tell you this is why you lack true joy. Because you're, you're just trying to use good moral behavior as this way to life instead of a vital, loving, dependent relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're someone who is not yet a follower of Christ, I would tell you that this might be the reason why you don't want to be one. Because you, you just see Christianity as just behaving yourself and, and getting your actions in check, and you don't see it as a, um, as a joy-giving, life-giving experience. So I want you guys to go ahead and do your first three questions at your tables. So hopefully you've had enough time for those uh, first few questions. Why don't you look down with me at verse 21. We'll pick up in verse 21. Uh, Paul says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what in the world is he talking about when he says these things in in verse 21? He is asking the question, for you as the Jews, do you practice what you preach? Because they'd been given the law and they were to speak into the culture of the day, but there was a problem. They were doing the very things they were speaking out against. They were guilty of the very things they were speaking against in the culture. And I began thinking about this. How, 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 how is it that we do this today in our culture today as Christians? How do we fall into the same trap today? 
Um, one way in which I think this happens is that Christians are the ones screaming about homosexuality and gay marriage in our culture, but we're also the ones having sex before marriage and living together before marriage and cheating on our wives and husbands and downloading pornography and watching movies with lots and lots of sexuality, right? So we speak out against certain kinds of sexual sin, but then violate all the other ways in which God says to be pure sexually as a people. You know, um, I don't mean for this to come across, because I'm in the same boat that you're in. Don't mean for this to come across like judgmental, but I need us to think about one thing as we think about this uh, part of the passage, because um, just think about what you and I watch. Is there anything that we don't watch because of content? Is there anything that you and I will say, no, I'm not going to watch that series on Netflix. There's this two, there's sexuality throughout the whole, I can't watch that. Or a movie that has, like, I, I can't watch it because of the content. Is there ever a time when you say no to something because of the content? Um, because th- there are times when I'll just be on social media and see some of us post, like, yeah, going to see this movie. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a good movie. Wonder wh- I wonder what's in it. I wonder if I can go watch that. And I'll go to a website that talks about what's actually in it so I can know the screen what I'm watching before I watch it. And I'm like, if I were just to read up here from the stage what some of those things contain, it'd make my sermon R-rated, right? And, and, and at times, and again, I'm in the same boat that you're in. I, we struggle with this. But I have to ask the question, as Christians, is there anything that we say no to because of content? Like, is there anything that we say no to because of what's in it? And it's convicting because I think um, just, just what's happened to this idea of, of like, holiness and, 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 and saying no to something because I just don't think God wants me watching that. And I've been guilty of it. We've all been guilty of this. And so I think this is one way in which, you know, you know you're looking at that passage you're like, well, he's talking about adultery. Well, you know, adultery... Sermon on the Mount, remember what, what Christ said in Matthew 5 through 8? He said, if you so much look with, at someone with lustful intent, it's like committing adultery in your heart. There's multiple layers of, of sin. It's not just adultery like, okay, adultery and adultery. This is like, this can be heart adultery. This can be um, the heart level of sins he's talking about, as you see in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 8. And so where's our sense of reverence for what God says, a sense of holiness? Like, yeah, I I need to actually think about these things before I say yes to them and live these things out. Um, I think it's easy for us to take this book and shake it at the world, but meanwhile, are we living by it? Are we living out the truths that are in this book? And this is the very thing that the Jews are struggling with. They're not living out the very thing they preach to the Gentiles. And if you look back at verse 21, he says, You then who teach others, do you, not, do you not teach yourself? And this is a hugely convicting passage for me because I can so relate to verse 21. Because in my position as a pastor, it's so easy to study a passage and figure out how I'm going to teach it to you. And meanwhile, let it pass right over my own heart and soul. 
It's so easy to come to you and say, like, oh, I got this good analogy, this good story, this good illustration, this great passage, and I'm going to really bring it on Sunday. And it's so easy to fall into that, but then let it pass right over myself and let me go unaffected by it. This is actually why uh, a friend of mine a long time ago told me, he said, you know, Dave, when you're, when you're teaching a lot like you are, he said, don't, don't just spend time in the Word based on what you're teaching from. He said, the reason why is because you won't let it affect you. You'll always be thinking about how you can teach it, teach it better, and say things better, and not actually let it affect you. He said, so I encourage you to um, spend time. So we're doing Romans right now. So right now I'm reading the book of Luke. So I can be doing like devotionals in the book of Luke while I'm also teaching Romans. Because I want to be affected by the Bible, not just teaching the Bible. And so you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I've got to teach myself. I've got to let the Bible teach me and not just make it something where I teach you. It has to affect me in this way. And then, um, you know, I had a friend once tell me that uh, you can never lead someone where you've never been. And it stuck with me because I know that if I'm not in this book, if I'm not being changed by it, I can't lead you anywhere if I've not been there. You can never lead anywhere, lead anyone somewhere you've never been. Why don't you look down at verse 23? Look closely at verse 23. He says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. How do Christians, I think, do this today? There's one example I thought of. I've got um, a, a family member, several family members, that they hold certain political views. Won't get into details of what that looks like, but they'll, they'll say this exact quote, I hate the fill-in-the-blank party. They will use the word, I hate the fill-in-the-blank party, right? And maybe some of your family says the same thing, so they have the same attitudes towards certain political viewpoints. And here's what's funny about that. When they espouse their political views... I assume they're basing their political views on some of the things that are in this book. But what good is it to base your political views on the Bible, but then categorically ignore all the verses about loving your enemies? What good is it to hold this book up to our culture and say, culture, you're not not living by this book, and then we ignore the verses about loving those that oppose us? or loving our enemies. If you remember in the law, the summary of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we love to get so caught up in the details of the law, like thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not all the external sins, but leave out the overarching purpose of the law, which is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we skip over that. So what we're guilty of the same thing the Jews are guilty of. We are guilty of, of boasting in the law, boasting in our knowledge of God's word, boasting in our behavior, while all the while ignoring the biggest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. And so we, we violate this law in the same way that the Jews did. That's like saying, you know, I'll embrace this part of God's word, but not this part. I'll embrace the parts that 
make me feel holy, holier than them. I'll embrace the parts that make me feel better than them. And so this is what happens. And if you look down at verse 24, look what happens when Christians uh, live this way. Look at verse 24. He says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So when you and I live this way, here's what happens. People begin to look at God and they write him off because of how we live. Because we prop ourselves up by our behavior and we, they write God off. The word blasphemed means that it means to insult, to slander, to curse. And so this is just how unbelievers respond. The Bible tells us they're going to respond that way. And this is how they respond. So we shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers say that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, right? And I want to take just a second to talk about hypocrisy because I think this is really important. If you've ever heard someone say, or if you've ever said yourself, I'll never be a Christian because they're all hypocrites. If you've said that before, this passage is I think can speak something to you this morning, because here's the good news. If you don't like hypocrisy, there's good news. Neither does God. Jesus talked a lot about hypocrisy. And so if you're not a believer and you, and you think, I could never be a Christian because Christians are all hypocrites, there's good news. The founder of our religion, Jesus Christ himself, was against hypocrisy. And he spoke out against hypocrisy. He talked a lot about hypocrisy. So my encouragement to you this morning is to don't discount Jesus. Don't discount Christianity because of hypocrites, because Jesus himself was against hypocrisy. And I'll also tell you that the fact that we have hypocrites in Christianity, this is to be expected, because it, it just shows that, that, that the gospel shows us there's a standard that we can't live up to. To me, it actually points out the truth of the gospel. The fact that we have hypocrites shows the truth of Christianity because it shows there's a standard that none of us live up to. In other words, have you ever heard someone say, um, let's say an atheist like cheats on his wife? Does anybody say, hypocrite? No, because... He doesn't believe in he doesn't believe in a God, doesn't believe in a stand, doesn't believe in a principle. So if an atheist cheats on his wife, no one's gonna be like, oh, what a hypocrite. I mean, if a pastor cheats on his wife, everyone's like, hypocrite. Because he at least claimed to believe in a principle and a standard that he wasn't living up to. And, and so you can't you can't let the fact that there's hypocrites keep you from knowing Christ, following Christ, wanting to be a Christian. I want to ask you some more questions here. Um, so how do you and I know if we have this kind of empty faith that we're talking about um, in this passage? I want to ask you two more questions here on the screen. Um, do you and I love the concept of truth, but we're never changed by it? And the second question is, when you and I hear a sermon, do we think about someone else who needs to hear it? Do you think about someone else who needs to hear what's being talked about? Um, these are two more clues that, that indicate whether or not we have this moralism type of faith. And so I want to turn now to uh, verse 25. This is where um, Paul begins talking about uh, circumcision. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want you to understand what he's saying here in verse 25 and, and beyond. Look at verse 25 all the way to 29. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So is that a confusing passage? That's a little bit of a confusing passage. Because here's what he's trying to get at with this whole circumcision topic. Israel had this covenant with God, and circumcision was given by God as a sign of that covenant. Now, and if you go back to Genesis chapter 17, Abraham was given this sign by God. Abraham was 99 years old. And God told him to go circumcise himself. Awkward, right? You can imagine Abraham's like, you know, I'm, I'm old. My hearing's not the best. Did you really say <laughs> circumcision, right? And you can imagine that, that Abraham, I mean, he, he'd put up a fight. He said, you know, well, I mean, can't we think of some other sign of the, circ- of, of the covenant? Maybe like a tattoo or something? Maybe pierce my ear, something that would show the covenant besides that, anything God. (laughs) And the question is why circumcision? That's a strange way to symbolize a covenant, isn't it? Why does God choose this as the sign of the covenant? Here's why God chose it as the sign of the covenant. In that day, um, when a covenant was made, a covenant's a relationship based on a promise. What would often happen is um, they would make a sign of the covenant. So if two men made a covenant together, one might pick up dust and, and throw dust into the wind and say something like, um, if I break this covenant, may I become like this dust, or something along those lines. And so the covenant um, sim- symbolism of circumcision, here's how it was a sign of the covenant. So as the man, as the man was cut in the act of circumcision— it was God's way of saying, if you break this covenant, you'll be cut off from God. And so instead of seeing circumcision as a sign of the covenant, the Jews began to see it as a source of pride, which is kind of a weird way to see pride, right? Like, it's just a weird idea, but it made sense to them in their culture. And so since circumcision does not mean all of that in our world today, what's the main point of this passage? The main point I think he's trying to make is that the external symbol of circumcision doesn't matter if there isn't internal heart change. In other words, this wedding ring symbolizes our marriage, my wife and I. But does this wedding ring matter if I don't love her? It's a symbol, but if the thing it symbolizes isn't there, then what's a symbol? Well, it's, it's nothing. It means nothing if what it symbolizes isn't present. And so the point of the passage is that um, the external symbol doesn't matter if there isn't internal heart change. I want to modernize this passage as well because I think it's hard for us to think of circumcision as meaning anything besides just, you know, you were born in a hospital, right? And so I want you to look at this is what um, a modern retelling of this passage might look like. Go to my next slide there. So, um, I think we have this up there. So what if you've been baptized? Next passage. Yes. 
So what if you've been baptized? So what if you are, what if you are a church member? This only counts for anything if there has been real change in your life, if your heart has been truly affected. Don't you know that you are not a Christian if you are only one externally? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. No, a Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. What matters is inner baptism, a heart membership of God's people. And this is supernatural work, not a human one. So this is a, a modern retelling of what this might look like in our culture today. And, and the big idea is that the law cannot transform us. Only God's Spirit can transform us. And, um, and I, I want to let this point you to Jesus, because this, this whole thing comes down to Christ. And if you look at, um, flip over to Colossians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles or your apps. Um, the whole law was meant to point us to Jesus Christ. And so I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And we'll close with this passage. It says, In him, meaning Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians talks about this big idea that when you and I become a Christian, Jesus becomes our circumcision. That's a weird concept, isn't it? I mean, can we turn that into an impact story, right? Um, you know, okay, kids, like, who wants to make Jesus your circumcision, right? Meet me over there by those sharp rocks over there, right? So, I mean, that may not fit, right? But, but we can't, I've totally, the, the train has gone off the tracks now. It's gone off the tracks. Just reel back in, reel back in. But this is a weird concept for us, right? It's a totally strange concept. We don't, we're not used to this idea. But what this passage is really, listen, listen, listen. What this passage is really about is if you're a believer in Christ, um, you have been spiritually circumcised in Christ. In other words, that Jesus became our curse. Jesus became the curse. In other words, he, he basically was, was cut off from the Father. He was cut off from the Father in fellowship and took the punishment that we deserve. This is what Colossians chapter 2 is saying to us. And he bore our curse for us. And this is the point of Colossians chapter 2. And he bore the, the curse that we deserve. And this is the gospel. And you're going to feel like, as we go through the book of Romans, that every talk is a little bit incomplete as we move towards the future chapters of Romans 1 to 8. And so bear with us as we walk through this together. But I want you to see how everything we're talking about is going to point to this relationship with Jesus Christ. So go ahead and discuss your last uh, several questions there at your tables.